As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So Matt, I went and I bought a new dry erase board for the graveyard here so that I could, you know, keep track of our schedule and all that stuff. And it, it's pretty remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't I see that one? It's <laughs> good. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the graveyard. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Adam. And my name's Matt. Now, pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is Graveyard Tales. (laughs) All right, everybody, here we are again. Matt, how you doing tonight, brother? Hey, I'm good, man. Good. good. It's good to good to be back in the graveyard and talking to all you folks. Oh yeah. Hey, you know what? I noticed something today. What's that? Um, I was I was flipping through this morning through a lot of the posts in the in the in the graveyard group, and I was really picking up on a lot of new listeners. Yeah. You know, they were saying, "Hey, I found these guys a week ago, or I found them two weeks ago," and. Um, I just, I just, I wanted to mention that because I know I don't say a whole lot, but I want to let y'all know I do read what y'all post and it is appreciated oh, and, yeah. I, and I do appreciate all the new folks that have found us. We're glad you did. Um, I had, I saw some posts, people said, Hey, I'm, I, you know, I found them a week ago and I'm already on episode 50. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So, you know, where they, where they go back and they start at the beginning mm-hmm. and that, that always makes Adam and I a little nervous. Yep. You know, <laughs> totally. You know, hundred and some odd episodes in, and we remember what it was like when we started. Oh yeah. So we're always kind of like, please don't base your opinion on the first two or three episodes. Yep. Listen to a newer one exactly before you you say these guys are morons. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because we were just now and then tell us we're more. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I can handle the moron comment because we are. But, you know, just give us a fair shot. Uh, yeah, the, the, I, I've said that, too. And you and I have talked about that several times just off mic is that the first few episodes, it's not that I'm ashamed of what we put out or what we said or anything like that. We just we had to get in a groove. And, right. you know, our intros were not the same. Our, our, I, I don't know. It, it, we, we just weren't in the we groove were, yet. And I'm like, we, eh, we the were, editing yeah, wasn't. 
we were starting out. We we weren't we weren't very, you know, we didn't we didn't have the the equipment or the knowledge that mm-hmm. we have learned now. And I mean, honestly, we we learned a lot of this on the fly. But a lot of independent podcasters like ourselves were instrumental in giving us advice, right? On don't do this. You need to do this. Use this software. Don't even try this. Mm-hmm. You know those kind of things. That was really crucial as we came along to to kind of figure out you know how we were going to do this and do it well. But you know we we got the episodes out there, but you could tell we were still learning. So. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. And the the learning of the editing. Um, you know, I do our editing, and I I had not done audio editing like this at all before we started i I knew the basics of it uh, learned a little bit from my stepdad who does it but you don't know until you get into doing it (laughs) and you know it's just not the same and uh like matt said we got a lot of help from people that um you know started before us and that that's why matt and i don't mind if you're just starting out with a podcast you can email us or hit us up on facebook and, you know, if we have the time, we will definitely help you guys out, give you some tips and and pointers and stuff like that, because um, we know it's difficult there in the beginning. So, yep, yep. But glad to see so many new folks. Oh, absolutely. Um, but speaking of tips and tricks and all that, go check out the Podbelly Network at podbelly.com. And they have some tips and tricks for you on what to use and how to get your podcast started and some other shows to listen to. Um, if you're caught up with us, if you binged 50 something episodes in one week and you're, you're caught up, then you might be able to find you a different podcast there. We also want to thank tonight's sponsors, Manscaped and HelloFresh. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about them later, but talking about people we're thankful for, obviously we're thankful for the new members and, you know, glad to see y'all coming and please invite more people in, but also we're thankful for our patrons over on patreon.com slash graveyard tales. So if you want to get into some bonus episodes over there, um, we do stuff similar to what we do here. We do stuff wildly different than what we do here. Um, it's yep. just a, it's a mixed bag and we have a lot of fun doing it. Um, the, the humor is a little more blue, uh, a little lighter there. So we may cuss where we won't on a main episode. So just keep that in mind. <laughs> Um, yeah. yep. and we're doing an on and off series that we do randomly. Um, we'll pick a different piece of ghost hunting equipment and we'll talk about how it works. And then we'll talk about any experience we've had with it and our thoughts on it. So you can go check that out over there. We just put out one on thermal imaging cameras or FLIRs. Um, if you're interested in that. Yeah. And you get, uh, and you get some video of right. us um, doing the Patreon shows, uh, and the uh, and the top tier actually gets video of us doing the main episode. Right, and not only do you get us video of doing this, um, you're gonna get video of us before we actually hit the record button. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get to hear us banter back and forth, and and you know you get to, like I said, you get to see how the sausage is made. Right. And, Sometimes it's not pretty. No, you know, (laughs) it's not always pretty. Um, Sometimes we're funnier than other times, too. So, but uh, you do get, um, if it's something that 
we can uh, share, then we definitely put it up there before right. we start the intro. So you get that. And then um, for our five and ten dollar patrons, after your first month, we send out a sticker pack um, to you guys as a thank you um, for your donations and your patronage there. And then you get uh, the $10 obviously gets more of the video like Matt was saying, but the $5 does get video of the Patreon episode. So yeah. go check it out. If you want to see some, uh, you know, video of us or just, you know, get some different topics. Uh, and it's not a, I mean, you're not locked in for a year. If you want to do it for a little while and then quit, that's absolutely fine. You know, you can stop month to month if you would like, um, yeah. try it out. And then if you don't like us, then you, you're not stuck for a year. So you just get a series of robo calls over the next <laughs> six to eight months, uh, wanting you to take a survey as to why you left. Right. And, uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That, that is currently happening to me. Yeah. So thought I would share that with well, y'all. <laughs> or you can do like what happens on, um, our graveyard tales voicemail, um, and every, every week or two weeks you get a, uh, hi, um, your automobile warranty is expired and, um, we're se- <laughs> I'm like, how do you do this? Because they're the graveyard. That's a business telephone number. Never been connected to the purchase of any vehicle. Yeah. And they're calling me about my vehicle's warranty. <laughs> so I'll just, and if you, if you quit Patreon, Patreon, I'll send those calls to you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. All right, Matt. So let's take a second and let's talk about one of tonight's sponsors, Manscaped. Now, you got to get prepared for St. Patrick's Day, and the best way to do it is with Manscaped. You got to take care of your leprechaun. Exactly. Keep keep that leprechaun nice and trimmed up, and you you don't want a hairy leprechaun. I'm sorry, but you don't. Now, to ensure you have the best tools for your family jewels, you got to visit manscaped.com and use our promo code GRAVE for 20% off and free international shipping. You're in luck because the Manscaped Performance Package is the ultimate men's hygiene bundle. Included in this new package is the Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, which is waterproof and uses a 9,000 RPM motor-powered 360-degree rotary dual-blade system. So there is not going to be a nose hair left after you shove that thing up there. <laughs> you the, you the, can really take care of some nose hairs with this. Oh, man. that And that weed whacker, you can hear it <laughs> as you get in there. So you know you're getting a clean nose. And look, guys, 79% of partners polled admitted that long nose hair is a major turnoff. So why not use the best tools for the job? Yeah, and this bundle comes with the lawnmower 3.0 trimmer. Now, this is the best trimmer on the market, you know, for your lower body hair region. And I've got to say, just the other day, Amanda comes out and she says, I love this Manscaped trimmer. This is the best trimmer I've ever used. And, you know, listeners have asked. They wanted to know, you know, what are ladies thought of the manscape trimmer and i'm telling you amanda hands down she loves it yeah and we told you it's not just for dudes that's right that's right 
And don't forget their famous liquid formulations. You've got the Crop Preserver deodorant and the Crop Reviver toner to maximize your hygiene routine. That's some of my favorite stuff they have. Yeah, and you can get 20% off free shipping with the code GRAVE at manscaped.com. And Adam, every purchase at manscaped.com goes towards contributions made to the Testicular Cancer Society to bring awareness to testicular cancer, men's health, and early cancer detection. What a great cause. Oh, that's incredible. Graveyard Tales listeners can get 20% off and free shipping with the code GRAVE, that's G-R-A-V-E, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com, and you just have to use the code GRAVE. That's right. To get 20% off and free shipping, just use our promo code GRAVE, G-R-A-V-E, at manscaped.com. That's M-A-N-S-C-A-P-E-D.com. And it'll get you 20% off and free shipping, and it's international shipping. And remember, there's gold at the end of the rainbow with Manscaped. So, Matt. So, uh, yeah, we've bantered enough, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So, why don't you tell us? This is going to be an interesting episode um, in how it all wraps up. So, why don't you tell us? What are we talking about tonight, brother? Okay, so tonight we are going to head to the east coast of the U.S. And we're going to talk about a a place that was surprising as we got into the research um, because it's, it's not really like other places we've done that are similar. We're going to talk about the, the South Carolina lunatic asylum, uh, also called the South Carolina state hospital and, uh, also called bull street. You know, it had, it has several names. The locals have their own name for it. Um, but it, we, we did learn that it is the second oldest asylum in the United States. Yeah, and that's wild that it's still standing. Of, I mean, just uh, a, a lot of interesting history here. Um, and it shows up on a lot of most haunted in South Carolina mm-hmm. lists. You know, it just it it's kind of a, a usual suspect when you start looking at places that may or may not be haunted in South Carolina. And uh, and we're going to get into that a little bit later. So, um, so get let's, all let's talk, up let's into talk that. about it. Yeah, all up in it. So all let's right. talk about it, Adam. The South Carolina Lunatic Asylum. All right. So like Matt said, it's called the South Carolina Lunatic Asylum or the South Carolina State Hospital. And it's located at 2100 Bull Street, Columbia, South Carolina. Um, if you want to drive by and check it out. And like we always say, if you want more information, go check out our sources down at the bottom of this. And you can see some of the stuff that we left out because I know for a fact in in the history of this, I left out big swaths of information because it was there, <laughs> but I don't have four hours to talk about the history of this building. But if you want four hours of it, absolutely, you can definitely go and read it yourself. 
absolutely it's there <laughs> find the pdf link that's there and you'll have uh, you'll have a ball um so this first bit comes from the south carolina uh, encyclopedia and it says the south carolina lunatic asylum which is located in columbia was established by the general assembly in 1821 it did not open however until 1828 due to delays and cost overruns its founding was the work of a small group of lawyers legislators and doctors among them samuel farrow William Crafts, and Dr. James Davis, who became its first visiting physician. Now, this next part comes from a PDF that I was telling you about, about the Department of Mental Health in South Carolina. And it says, according to legend, when uh, Colonel Samuel Farrow, a member of the House of Representatives from Spartanburg County, traveled to Columbia to attend sessions of legislature, He noticed a woman who was mentally distressed and apparently without adequate care. Her poor condition made an impact on him and spurred him on to engage the support of Major William Crafts, a brilliant orator and a member of the Senate from Charleston County. The two men worked zealously to sensitize their fellow lawmakers to the needs of the mentally ill. And on December 20, 1821, the South Carolina legislator, legislature passed a state at large approving $30,000 to build the South Carolina lunatic asylum and school for the deaf and dumb. The you'll have to forgive the some of the language here that they use it it's old um, but anyway uh, this legislation made South Carolina the second state in the nation after Virginia to provide funds for the care and treatment of people with mental illnesses. So like Matt said it's the second oldest one. Mm-hmm. Now, Robert Mills, a renowned architect, was chosen to design the new South Carolina Lunatic Asylum. In 1822, the cornerstones were laid for the Mills building, which took six years to complete. The building's many innovations included fireproof ceilings, a central heating system, and one of the country's first roof gardens. South Carolina's asylum was one of the first in the nation built expressly for the mentally ill and funded by a state government. Citizens were wary of sending their loved ones to the asylum, and so it was not until December 12, 1828, that the first patient was admitted, a young woman from Barnwell County. She was accompanied by her mother, who worked as a matron while her daughter was a patient at the hospital. So, I mean, I can see that. You know, you've got a mm-hmm. new, it's brand new for the country, really, building, right. and they're saying, we will take care of your mentally ill family and they're like, I don't trust that. I mean, I, right. I can see that happening. Yeah, because at the time, um, medical care for folks suffering from mental illness was nowhere. I mean, it really wasn't anything. Yeah, slim to none, basically. I mean, you know, it definitely wasn't what would be considered treatment. Right. It was It was more or less housing. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe you know, you, you, you were having difficulty... Um, providing care for all of their needs. Um, it was, you know, n- not just not just a financial burden, but a physical burden, too. And so people didn't know where to turn. So th- this was filling a gap, so to speak. Right. And as Adam said, it was new. And, you know, a lot of people were kind of shy about, you know, sending a loved one here. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's understandable. So you can't blame them for... For that. Um, Now, the asylum's founders, influenced by early 19th century British and French ideas of moral treatment and therapeutic optimism, hoped to create a curative institute for patients of all classes. At first, however, 
The asylum had difficulty attracting patients, and it nearly shut down after a few years. Finances were also a problem. The fees of the wealthy patients were intended to subsidize the care of the poorer ones, and the counties paid for the care of their pauper or indigent patients. Um, But the system never worked particularly well, and the state had to provide subsidies periodically. Now, this goes on to say that before the 1860s, the number of resident patients was small, never exceeding 200. But during the Civil War, funding problems grew worse. And Dr. John W. Parker, the superintendent, opposed a plan to turn his complex into a prisoner of war camp. Now, although the Confederate Army did not get the asylum, the grounds were used as a prison camp for Union officers from October 1864 to February 1865. So this is basically just right outside um, this hospital um, that they basically just set up shop out there. Yeah. Despite worsening conditions late in the war, the asylum became a refuge for many Columbia residents when the city burned during Union General William T. Sherman's occupation in February 1865. With dwindling provisions, Parker did his best to provide for his patients and for the destitute citizens. Like the rest of the South, the asylum struggled to survive in the aftermath of the war. Despite the lack of funds, the superintendent accepted more patients and often used his own money to provide them with food and other necessities. J.F. Enzer, a Maryland native and former Union Army surgeon, became superintendent in 1870 and tried hard to find adequate funds for the institution. Several citizens from around the state contributed, and he received a $10,000 subscription from some Philadelphia Quakers, which helped repair the buildings. And they gave him some oats, too. It, it was amazing. Helped feed the, <laughs> feed the families and... Uh, more than once, when local businesses could no longer give him credit, Enzor supplemented the institution's meager budget with his own funds. So we, we've had this happen a lot of times now where, mm-hmm. you know, the, the superintendent is having to pay for stuff. Um, now, as the population grew, it became virtually impossible to treat patients, and the asylum became largely a dormitory to house the mentally ill. In 1870, Enzo reported that the rundown asylum rooms, quote, were mere cells of chink in the wall, dark and illy ventilated, end quote, and that there was not an adequate means of diagnosing patients. These problems were solved to the best of his ability, though. Um, While Enzo made some strides in providing for patients' physical needs, overcrowding remained a problem. Now, the time frame here that I'm getting into is going to bounce around a little bit. Um, by a few years, but you, it should be easy enough to keep up with. Um, it's just kind of how this document goes and, and what kind of flows the best. Now, from 1871, the state paid the cost of care of pauper or what's now called state beneficiary patients, um, which led to a large increase in their numbers. The number of patients was more than 1,000 by 1900 and more than 2,000 by 1920. Nearly all of them were beneficiaries. Now, the asylum changed in other important ways after 1865. Without openly abandoning its curative goals, um, this says, indeed, in 1892, it opened a training school for nurses, and in 1896, it was renamed the South Carolina State Hospital for the Insane. It gradually adopted a custodial function, caring for large numbers of patients deemed primarily chronic and incurable. 
Conditions at the hospital deteriorated badly around the turn of the century due to grossly inadequate funding and an unworkable administrative structure. Now, although hospital finances became more stable in the 1880s, the legislature instructed the superintendent to economize wherever he could. While most states were increasing, that's a, you know, when you get that from uh, right. government officials, you're like, look, y'all need, you know, make this as economic as you possibly can. It's yeah. like, I'm, I'm subsidizing funds with my own pocket right. money. What do you want? Right. Yeah. Economize is a fancy word for cut corners. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> economize is we're going to stop paying for anything and you just figure out what you're going to do. <laughs> That's right. When I turned 17, my parents economized my um, uh, my money that I got from them. My, yes. <laughs> and so then I had to start paying for my own stuff. Yeah. Ramen noodles for everyone. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> while most states were increasing their annual per capita spending, South Carolina was reducing hers. The cost for each patient in 1877 had been $202. It was reduced to $140 by 1888. Nine years later, the per capita rate had fallen to $107.80, one of the lowest in the nation. Mm. So that's that's economic right there. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) It's a it's a plummet. Yeah, like a plummet. Um, (laughs) Plummet. By uh, 1900, the state hospital had 1,040 patients, and more than 30 percent of them died annually, due in part to poor living conditions and inadequate supervision. More facilities were built in the 1870s and 1880s, including two major additions to the buildings constructed in the 1850s, northeast of the original Mills building. However, the population outgrew these by 1900. Hey, hey, just imagine. I mean, 1,040 patients? I mean, that's a lot. That's patients. That's not staff. On top of that, to care staff to care staff to care for the building and maintenance i mean that's a lot of people yeah i mean that's that's, i mean it gives you gives you an idea of how big of a facility this would had to have been right you know to accommodate these numbers of 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 staff and patients yeah yeah It, it was crazy how how quickly it grew too they just started dumping people in there Now, this goes on to say that by 1910, after a legislative committee reported the asylum was too small, land was purchased north of Columbia, and plans were submitted for a new complex that became known as State Park. Now, a legislative study of the asylum in 1909 found many problems, ranging from poor sanitation and dilapidated buildings to situations in which patients lived in unclean quarters or were were forced to sleep in corridors. Many of the problems at the state hospital were common to facilities nationwide. And Dr. C. Fred Williams, superintendent of the South Carolina State Hospital from 1915 to 1945, realized the need for community health clinics. And he encouraged a program to educate the public about mental illness, its causes and methods of prevention. And we've discussed conditions like this before. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about them here in a little bit, too. But um 
conditions got bad there and at least somebody was stepping up and going hey this this, this is not right you yeah. know and it all boils down to overcrowding yeah i mean anytime we talk about um a, a mental hospital overcrowding is going to come up i mean it just is absolutely i mean so you know for for these the especially these older ones that were built in the in the mid to late 1800s overcrowding just was i mean it was a given i mean yep. it was it was gonna happen and then the expansions that they would do could never fully keep up because oh you have more room well that's not just going to allow however many patients and staff you have to move around a little easier and have a bed to sleep in and an own room no it just gives us leeway to shove more people in there right right that's it now, this says, in 1915, Governor Richard I. Manning instituted major reforms at the hospital, which modernized it and reduced mortality rates considerably. Like many other state hospitals, however, South Carolina's continued to suffer from uh, underfunding, unsanitary and overcrowded facilities, and custodial culture, like Matt was saying. Yeah. Now, the hospital was opening different clinics around the state. And during World War II, they closed due to funding problems and a lack of trained personnel uh, because a lot of them were having to go to war. But in late 1947, they began to reopen them again. And as clinics continued to grow over the state, the need for state and federal federal funding increased. Well, help came in 1946 with the passage of Public Law 487, and in 1952, with the passage of the Mental Health Act, Public Law 487 provided federal funds from the Surgeon General, U.S. Public Health Service, for adequate mental hygiene clinics. Now, the Mental Health Act provided for a mental health commission to be in charge of all mental health facilities. Communities were required to contribute one-third of the cost of clinic and center operations and the state would furnish the remaining two-thirds. So, real quick, let's jump up a few decades here. And I'll end out my part with this by jumping like at least three decades. Um, <laughs> it says, in 1981, nearly 100 years after its completion, the Babcock Building was listed on the National Register of Historic Places. However, patients still lived in the hospital until the 1990s, um, and the South, South Carolina Department of Mental Health announced it would close the facility finally in 2003. Now, since its vacancy nearly 20 years ago, the Babcock Building has withstood two fires. The first on December 13, 2018, was a two-alarm fire that is suspected to have been arson, and firefighters were able to extinguish the fire. Uh, the building was not a total loss, luckily. Well, last year, on the morning of September 12th, a three-alarm fire broke out, which caused the cupola to collapse as well as other significant damage. Despite the damage, developers actually believe that the renovation of it is still possible. Yeah. So it, it's it's seen some, uh, seen some issues here in the past few years. Yeah, and that... That cupola was uh, was significant, not just historically, but it was kind of a, um, a a symbol around the community 
yeah. beca- because it was so unique, it was it was garnet. I think it was a twelve sided dome. You know, a, a, a pretty unique structure. You know, to say the least. But you know, when you have something like that, especially when it's attached to a historical building, you know, there's always some, you know, some some pride, nostalgia. Sure. You know that that when you when you see that rising above, you know the the local community you're like oh and then now you know it's it's gone yeah and we'll post some of these pictures in patreon um if you want to see them yeah it was it was an amazing building sure i mean you know when you see the old photographs from the outside i mean it was just an incredible structure and and huge i mean the the grounds the campus was extraordinarily large um which you know also gives you an idea of how much had to be maintained mm-hmm. and and why the conditions there may have been you know substandard because you have this much real estate that you have to manage on top of all the people that were there right it becomes extraordinarily say, difficult yeah with it being as big as it is the other thing that it shows is you know how many people were actually there to be able to right. overcrowd it, you know, that yeah. was a ton of people. Yeah, that's that's a point. That's a great point. Um, you know, you look at it and you're it's huge, and then you think this place was overcrowded. Yeah, how many people did they really shove into this place? A mm-hmm. lot. Yeah, because yeah. the numbers that we have may not actually be true. You know, they could be under um, underreported as far as how many people were in the right. building. Yeah, we're going to talk about that here in just a minute too. So when I started looking into the the South Carolina State Hospital, you know, I found, like I said at the top of the show, it was listed on several lists of the most haunted places in South Carolina. Now, visitors have described seeing strange shadows, hearing residual hospital sounds. That's a new one. Um, And hearing disembodied cries and screams of former patients. However, Digging a little deeper usually results in local ghost stories, paranormal investigations, and tour guides with tales of doors opening and footsteps from empty corridors. Yet, the facility at Bull Street, as it's known to locals, has virtually none of that. And and when I say none, I mean none. Now, understand that this is the research that we can find that's accessible. You know, mm-hmm. this is this is what's in public records. This is what's available on the internet. This is what has been published. So outside of actually going to Columbia, South Carolina, and poking around and finding individuals who had any kind of experience, we couldn't find it. You know, it's just not there yet. It's it's all over all these, you know, haunted asylum. You know, it's one of the most haunted places in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. It's just not documented that way. So my question, Adam, is why? Yeah. You know, it fits the bill for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, there were not only were, were there a lot of deaths inside the facility just from medical conditions, maybe even illnesses caused by unsanitary, you know, living situations. 
um, you know, it, it was, a, it was an asylum, right? You know, there's a lot of energy and emotion and we've talked about this. We've, we've talked about several others in the past and, and just that negative energy that holds into those stones that make up the structure itself. Um, you would believe this is places haunted. I mean, oh yeah. Plus it's old. I mean, it is, it's so old. You really want to think, I, you know, if there's ghosts in South Carolina, they're probably in here. And the um, grounds were used as a prison during the war on top of all that. Yeah. So you've not, got a prison and an asylum there. Yeah. And it was a prison then, but it actually housed prisoners and there were executions mm-hmm. uh, performed there, you know, for, you know, criminal executions. Yep. So when you when you search, you'll find videos essentially of urban explorers, you know, roaming through the, the decay with or without permission, um, which it's it's illegal to to enter the facility without, you know, express permission. Yeah. Please get um, permission if you're going to go there. Yeah. I mean, number one, it's dangerous. I mean, you know, yeah. especially now, I mean, the, the building has sustained two fires. Um, so you never really know what you're going to come into when you get into a building, you know, that's been through that. But just the age of it, you know, a, a floor that that looks perfectly fine, you know, you know, it, it could give way at any moment. So you, you yeah. kind of have to know what you're doing or at least have someone with you that knows or someone that can tell you now you shouldn't go here, here and here. <laughs> Yeah, you know exactly. Or, or you're gonna you're gonna join the you're gonna join the ghosts in there. Yeah, right. Um, but you know you'll be watching these videos and you'll hear the occasional. Well, what was that? You know where you know the you know the person running the camera. You know hears something, but most of it really seems like they're just they're scaring themselves. Um, you know they're they're hearing an odd noise and they're in a they're in an abandoned building. So you know mm-hmm. they they spook themselves out. Rocky raccoon is over there making noises and freaked them out. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, or, or, or real people, you know, yeah, that, that's the a most good point. recent fire they think was probably just from, you know, the, they use the term vagrant. Uh, you know, it's always a funny term to me. I guess it, I guess it's accurate, but now, maybe some folks that got there. in there trying to keep warm and, you know, set mm-hmm. them a little fire and it got out of control. And next thing you know, the building's burning. But, um, but records from the hospital are scarce. Um, so when you start looking into how the patients were treated as a reason for hauntings, it's it's not really as viable as you would think. But we, we do know a few things. Now, as we talked about earlier, Bull Street was overcrowded badly. Oh, yeah. And, and like Adam mentioned, by 1900, there were a little more than 1,000 people admitted uh, each year. And approximately 30% of the asylum's population died each year. So, I mean, you know, you get a thousand people in a year, 300 of them are going to die. Yeah. So with so many lives passing into the facility and never leaving, you know, the former insane asylum's main building is said to be among one of the most haunted in the state, possibly the entire Southeast. But is this just assumed because of paranormal activity is so common in so many of the other old asylums? 
Hey, Adam. Knock, knock. Who's there? Hello. Hello who? Hey, it's Hello Fresh. Awesome. Right at your door. And what is Hello Fresh, you ask? Hello Fresh is one of the best meal delivery services of available. You get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. Hello Fresh lets you skip those trips to the grocery store and makes home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. And that's why it's America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh cuts out the stressful meal planning and grocery store trips so you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in about 30 minutes or less. And I can attest to that um, mm-hmm. because you've got everything you need right there. So you can right. you can get started on it as soon as you open the box. Now, HelloFresh has 25 or more recipes to choose from each week. There's something for everyone to enjoy. All recipes are designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. Oh, yeah. And we had a, like, it was an orange glazed chicken the other day that, you know, you, you make this sauce and then you put the chicken in there that you've already cooked and it just glazes it up. And, dude, I'm going to tell you, Michael doesn't like normally you know real strong flavors and stuff he's a kid so he likes the bland usually you know hot dog with no sauce on it just the the hot dog and the bun but he loved this stuff and that's just a testament to how good it is and he enjoys cooking at least once a week he'll get in there and help us with one of the meals and you know chopping stuff and everything we don't let him really use the stove but we (laughs) we do let him use a knife I, i don't know if that's any better or not but um, <laughs> Cut versus burn, you know. <laughs> yeah, which is worse? I don't know. Um, but you know, it helps teach him how to how to cook, and and he enjoys the food more because he's actually getting in there and helping. Yeah, and and all of my kids love it. In fact, when they see that box on the front porch and they get home from school, all I hear is, "Yes, we're doing Hello Fresh mm-hmm. tonight." I mean, they yep. they really do get excited, not just because they know they're going to get to help with the meal. But they know it's going to be good. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we have we have not had anything bad come from HelloFresh, and I'm I'm telling you, folks, give it a shot. You are going to be amazed at the service that you get, the quality of the ingredients, and the deliciousness of the food. You know, oh, absolutely, it's just fantastic, absolutely, and. All you got to do is go to HelloFresh.com slash Graveyard12 and use our code Graveyard12 and you get 12 free meals, including shipping. That's G-R-A-V-E-Y-A-R-D-1-2. Yeah, so Graveyard listeners, all you got to do is go to HelloFresh.com slash Graveyard. That's G-R-A-V-E-Y-A-R-D-1-2. One two, and using that promo code, you get twelve. That is twelve, a dozen free meals, including free shipping. So give it a shot. The other thing that we know for a fact is that one of the superintendents, Dr. James Babcock, uh, who was superintendent from eighteen ninety one until 1914 and and the historical building on campus bears his name um 
he uh, he worked with an investigation in 1907 into the presence of the disease pellagra. Now, pellagra is a niacin, or also known as vitamin B3 deficiency. And what they were doing is they were looking to see if this disease was present in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And you've got a nice uh, closed environment of people to, uh, you know, to monitor and to test. Ones that aren't going to complain too much either. Yeah, know. right. But the the disease was widely considered by doctors to be present in Europe, but not in North America. Now, Babcock was a leader in the study of pellagra and was able to diagnose several cases at the hospital. Now, pellagra causes severe skin issues with hypersensitivity to sunlight, dry flaking skin with a red-brown discoloration, cracking, itching, and burning. It I think also, we discussed it in our vampire episode a little bit. I, yeah, we did. We did, I do believe. But it also causes gastrointestinal distress uh, because it attacks areas with high cell turnover, like the maybe digestive got, tract. Maybe I've got pellagra. I get <laughs> intestinal distress. Oh, no, that's just Taco Bell. Never mind. You've got Taco Bellegra. Yeah. <laughs> Taco Bell, not a sponsor. But, I mean, if they want that's to sponsor right. us, but we'll if take they want it. Sponsor us, yeah. You know. Um, but among those issues, they also have a, uh, a dementia that's associated with it or the more antiquated term insanity. Right. Now it was thought to have been caused in the U S by changes in food production, namely cornmeal, where the majority of the nutritional value was processed out, leaving people without necessary nutrients from the food that they ate which this is interesting because of the connection of a physician at a psychiatric hospital discovering this disease in many of his quote unquote insane patients right leading me to believe that although early conditions at the south carolina state hospital may have been deplorable we see evidence of real treatment in the hospital yeah. You know, e- even that early on. So it was, it, it, it's, it's speculated that, you know, there were, there were people at the time that were possibly being admitted as patients who were suffering from pellagra because the food industry was over-processing food to the point that you were eating something with very little nutritional value. Yeah. Basically and, like cardboard. Yeah. And so your body is going without the the vitamin B that it needs and you start to develop this condition. And as I said, one of the the aspects of this condition is a dementia. Mm-hmm. And and there's I actually read a study from 2012 where a man was found, uh essentially a what they believe to be a homeless man. Um, who was, you know, incoherent, you know, on the street, had all these places on his skin, you know, was just, I mean, they thought he was, there was no way that um, they could care for this guy. Brought him in and after several tests, you know, over a period of a few weeks, they finally confirmed that he had 
Pellegra. And this is in 2012. So yeah. they started treating him with the vitamin B or niacin acid, and he started to improve. That's and not cool. only not only did he improve, he actually regained uh, his cognition and was able to communicate perfectly normal. Wow. Um, so, you know, they they said that the the uh, the case study that I read said that he he was completely incoherent. You know, he couldn't communicate on virtually any level, was talking to himself, would laugh, would throw the covers over his head for no reason. Um, you know, they, they, they didn't know what to do with him, and he couldn't tell them what was wrong. Yeah. But by treating this, he actually improved. So That's you know, awesome. Wonder, wonder how many, you know, ma- managed to be um, placed in an insane asylum, and they were suffering from pellagra. Yeah, something fairly easily to cure. Mm-hmm. But it still begs the question, why have paranormal investigators not researched this facility? My guess is they probably have, and they've come up with little or no value, valued evidence. Mm-hmm. You know, something that is worth publishing or something that... um would be substantial enough to say, Hey, we think this place might be haunted or maybe the smaller, you know, lesser known groups, uh, have investigated it and just didn't publish what they did find, or it just gets kind of mired in the, all of the paranormal investigations for all the other places around South Carolina. Yeah. Which makes me wonder why people haven't investigated more like, other big name places so you you go start looking for the 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 usual suspects in this and you're looking at like you know ghost adventures or um what was what, what was the other big one the taps group what was that one yeah called? i can't remember but those guys you know they investigated a lot of these places and there's i don't know a dozen more at this point um but they're just there's not none of them None of them have touched it. If they have, I sure couldn't find it. And that's usually the first thing you get when you start looking into one of these places. Yeah, it is. So, you know, it's whether or not this place is haunted, we really can't say. Um, You know, we we know a lot about the history. We think that it it definitely uh, fits into what we would think would be a haunted location. Um, But digging around, we just didn't find enough to make us think, Oh yeah, for sure. It's all. <laughs> we mm-hmm. just didn't find anything. Um, but you know, when we talk about these insane asylums and we talk about how these uh, these patients were treated, especially early on, um, it really shines a bright light on what what metal what metal what what mental health uh, care was like in the mid to late 1800s and through the 1900s to the modern day. Sure. Um, and, and not just, you know, the, the understanding that we have now or, or we're developing now. I mean, I think that psychiatric medicine is something that is, it's, it's never going to stop. I mean, you're, you're never going to get to a point where you're going to say, yeah, we, we know it all now. No, yeah, there's I no know way. everything. Yeah. But they knew so little then 
that you know a, a lot of times as adam said the the care that they received was mostly custodial it was a warehouse unfortunately mm-hmm. um and those kind of environments typically you know you know lead to some some energy that hangs around and yeah normally i wouldn't say that it's not but i i certainly based on what i was able to find can say that I, say that it was or say that it is but but I did find this, which I thought was very interesting. And I wanted to include this story for several reasons. One, it is a firsthand account from someone who worked in the hospital uh, during the end of its tenure. And two, kind of as a tribute to, to my mom, to my sister, my, my aunts and cousins, and, and my, my soulmate, Amanda. They're all nurses. Right. And they've done so much to help people by giving medications, dressing a wound, holding a crying baby, or, you know, hugging a new widow. You know, we often forget that when we describe the the horrid conditions at these century old facilities, that there were nurses among all of this that actually cared and, and tried to make it a better place. So this story comes from an article written by William, I'm, I'm going to butcher this guy's name, and I wish I could have found a better way to pronounce it, but it looks like it's Butch Height, uh, William Butch Height, and it was published in January of 2019. Sure, it's not Bush Eat. <laughs> <laughs> God, I hope not. <laughs> I feel, um, I'd, I'd really feel terrible. Yeah. Um, Mr. Bushit. Um. <laughs> <laughs> He's got me tickled now. <laughs> I don't know why I never even looked at it and thought that. <laughs> now, I took your serious comment and then I just stepped all yeah, over I just it. With, stomped all over it. You stomped on it with a boot with mud and dog poop. With some Bushit on it. Oh. <laughs> uh, but this story uh, is about uh, a lady named Ruth Westbury. Now, Ruth Westbury was a nurse and a South Carolina native who, after leaving nursing to marry and raise a family, decided that she would return to her career in the mid-1960s. Now, in the early 1950s, Ruth's nurse training program had assigned her to a three-month stint at the VA hospital in Lyons, New Jersey, for psychiatric training. Now, advances in psychiatric medicine were still few, so the experience for the 20-year-old Westbury was not a pleasant one. Now, Ruth not only decided to step away from nursing at that time, but she also decided that she would never work in psychiatrics again. You know, she figured, this is not for me. Yeah. But fate had a different plan for Ruth. And when she finally decided it was time to return, she found that Many places were unwilling to hire a nurse that had been out of practice for nearly 15 years. However, the South Carolina State Hospital did not have these qualms, and on February 14, 1966, Ruth arrived for her first day of work at the asylum. Now, though she started out as a staff nurse taking care of geriatric patients in the Gibbs building, Westbury was promoted to head nurse in only six months. She was then reassigned to a female ward 
in the Allen Building, which was a high-security building at the back of the state hospital's campus. Now, with far more people than they had rooms, patients were forced to live in close quarters and sleep in crowded dormitories. And Roos quoted as saying, Every day when I drove in, I would say to myself, Here I go again, seeing man's inhumanity to man. She said, That's what it looked like to me. There was no privacy and there were there were there just weren't enough people there to help them. So in such cramped quarters, uh, physical altercations between patients were were common, and nurses and staff occasionally would find themselves in harm's way. Now, soon after Westbury's arrival, a patient threw a coffee mug at her and hit her on the head. Hmm. Now, she said on another day, a patient slapped her when she forgot to get a doctor's order so the patient could use the phone. Now, I, you know, that, that seems odd, but yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of these facilities, in, in order to make a phone call, you actually had to have a doctor write an order that said this patient was okay to use the telephone. Yeah. Now, she goes on to say um, that other employees were upset with her because she didn't put this particular patient in seclusion for that. But Ruth said, I just hugged her and told her I was sorry and that we would get it taken care of. Now, that not only takes a good nurse, that takes a good person. Yeah, no joke. To, to do something like that. So Westbury was able to avoid more dangerous attacks. Not all nurses were that fortunate. She recalls a fellow head nurse who was assaulted and raped in her own office inside the Saunders building, which was another high-security structure in the back beside the Allen building. I mean, how horrible. That's, yeah, that's awful. But she says in her 21 years on Bull Street, she witnessed her share of sadness and horror. So about a year after she arrived, she said a female doctor committed suicide in the Cooper building after sewing a patient's lips together. Mm. So. This is a, this is a quote. She said one of the patients, a young man, had cut himself, and they had taken him over to the emergency room to get stitches. He was cursing the doctor, and she says she doesn't know what else. And she put some sutures on his lips. Said, of course, that incident got reported, and they found her body the next day. You know, Ruth says she was very upset because she was the one that had sent the patient over to the emergency room. She said she didn't know the doctor, but she was just shocked. Yeah. So this kind of gives you an idea of not only what it was like there for the patients, what it was like for the staff. Yeah. I mean, and up until fairly recently too, that yeah, was the that's 60s. Right. I mean, this is, I mean, yeah, we're talking about the sixties. I mean, so, I mean, it is, it is no walk in the park. And again, it just, it plays into a lot of negative energy. I mean, a lot of emotion. I mean, you, you really would think, God, if something, if, if something paranormal is going to go on, it's got to be right here. Yep. Now, Westbury claims that another disturbing incident took place in the Preston building one night when the age restrained a mentally disabled woman and locked her inside a seclusion room. Now, though it was standard practice, to conduct frequent checks on secluded patients, 
The woman died inside. So, you know, according to Westbury, it was a death that could easily have been prevented. She says she had been dead a long time when they found her. Everybody knew that if anybody had really checked on her, they would have found her much earlier. But again, an overcrowded mental hospital. And, and by this time, they're in the 60s. So the, the, the governing laws on how many patients they could have were a lot stricter. But even still, she, she described earlier seeing patients that had to sleep in the corridor because they didn't have mm-hmm. enough beds. You know, so you have overcrowding and understaffing. Things are going to get missed. You know, it's just it's just how it is. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're working in a mental hospital. It doesn't matter if you're working in a, you know, in a in a factory. Mm-hmm. You know, work in a record store. You know, you got this the more work than you got people. Something's going to get missed. Right now, research from newspaper archives reveal that the the patient in question was likely a lady named Annie Noakes who was a severely mentally handicapped 35-year-old psychotic, it it says, who died uh, on January 15th, 1984. Now, according to the Aiken Standard newspaper, Noakes died from an epileptic seizure after 13 hours in a restraint suit. Hmm. Said her death occurred even though hospital rules required that patients be released uh, from such suits every two hours for exercises. The three nurses' aides were charged with failing to follow hospital hospital protocol, and Westbury was even called into court to testify about the tra- tragedy. So if, the, if there's anything that would cause you to say, okay, I'm done, this is it. But right. she didn't. She kept going. And she says, although the terrible incident garnered much deserved media attention, Westbury claims that this was the exception rather than the standard when it came to bad things happening on Bull Street. Now, she goes on to say, and despite the heavy emotional toll that Bull Street took on its workers, uh, on occasion it offered moments of humor. Now, Westbury claims that during a period of sustained negative publicity for the hospital, two state senators asked permission to pose as patients and spend the night on the grounds. Why? That's weird. Publicity stunt. Yeah, a bad one. A bad one. Said they were placed in the high security Preston building. When they arrived and asked to be shown to their rooms, staff informed them that new patients were required to sleep in the open dormitory with dozens of others. Terrified, they were able to convince two patients who did have private rooms to let them have them for the night. <laughs> then they asked staff for the keys so they could lock the rooms from the inside. When they were refused, they pushed the bedside tables up against the doors so no one could come in. Oh, wow. They realized real quick, you know, what it was like to be in there. Yeah. And Westbury says, we didn't hear too much from them after that. (laughs) (laughs) Said it always amused me that they wanted to see what it would feel like to come in there as a patient. And when they did, they wanted no part of it. Yeah. But she said another morbidly amusing incident involved a catatonic patient that nurses were certain had died. Now, according to Westbury, it was their duty to dress deceased patients and prepare them for the morgue. When she couldn't get a blood pressure reading or detect any sign of respiration from this particular woman, Westbury was sure she had passed away. Said so we even called a doctor and he came in to see her and said there was nothing he could do. 
And yet, Westbury claims that when staff arrived at the morgue with the patient, she suddenly regained consciousness, stirring to life and scaring them to death. Hmm. And in no time at all, the patient was back on her ward as if nothing had happened. Wow. (laughs) And I thought, man, can you imagine? Can you just imagine? No. Rolling somebody, rolling a dead body, and then all of a sudden it sits straight up. Yeah, that would... (laughs) That one may have to go change your pants. Oh, man. She said that uh, there was a male patient who wrote a letter to President Lyndon Johnson declaring, you need to come do something about this nurse, Ruth Restberry. She's too damn sexy for her own good. <laughs> <laughs> to the president. Now, Westbury worked in the hospital until 1988. Now, she saw the hospital transform from a warehouse for the mentally ha- mentally ill, housing nearly 4,000 wow. to a hospital treating a patient population of around 700. Now, Westbury remained a caring, dedicated nurse for her 22 years at the South Carolina State Hospital, and a portrait in her honor hangs at the G. Werber Bryan Psychiatric Hospital uh, in Columbia. And that's a fitting tribute to a woman who believed that psychiatric nursing was not for her. So, you know, I I, I just, when I, when I read this, I thought this is just, I, I need to share this because it does give you kind of a, of a firsthand picture of what it was like, you know, to be in this facility and, and why people would believe that this place is haunted because of all the crazy right. wild things that happened and all the emotion, all the energy. Um, but because, you know, this just shows that even in these, these wild places that Adam and I talk about, there are people there that care Mm -hmm. and that look to take care of these folks that maybe don't have anyone else that can take care of them. And, and that adds to the emotion, but unfortunately for the South Carolina state hospital, we, we can't say one way or the other for sure that. We believe that it's haunted. It's just not been documented that well. And and maybe someday it will. Um, you know, maybe, and, and Amanda brought this up last night, the renovations that they're currently doing, they're, they're planned uh, luxury apartments is, is my understanding. Hmm. But as we've talked about in other shows, renovations and changes like this can sometimes bring about paranormal activity so it will be interesting for us to kind of keep an eye on it and see if over the next few years as these renovations occur if we start to hear some stories about maybe right. the spirits of some past residents and not being too happy with the changes that are going on right we could come touch on it again in a year or two and see if anybody's had any experiences with it turning into apartments or whatever but Matt, that that makes me have to ask you this question and kind of touched on it earlier, but that's only part of it is, A, why do you think that not many investigators have been there? And B, what, what do you think is different about this asylum in South Carolina that would make it not have the massive amounts of haunting information and, and stuff like that that we have heard from others with a similar history and, and similar 
conditions while it was running. Yeah. Well, I, I, I pondered on that. And, uh, what I think is that number one, the the hospital was still in operation until 1991, and then it was still officially open until 2003. So it's still a fairly modern building, and with a lot of activity. If there was any paranormal activity going on during those times, it was probably missed. Um, sure, you know, with all was, the hubbub going yeah, on. Too much, too much activity, too much action. You know, we can't, we can't focus on something subtle like a haunting because we've got, you know, we've got two in, uh, uh, patients fighting, right. you know, or we've got somebody that's sick. That's got to go over to the emergency room ward. You know, there's, there's always something going on. Little subtle things like doors opening and closing on their own or, or disembodied voices or anything like that. It, it's drowned out. Sure. So when we come up to 2003, when the when the building was essentially just abandoned, that was at a point where they said, "Okay, we've got an abandoned building here. You know, you're going to have to seek permission to to enter it." And so, I would imagine that it became difficult to get the okay to go in there and do these investigations. Now. In, in some of the videos, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to preface it by saying this is not my opinion, and I did not find any documented evidence that this is what happened, but it was said by other people who have done either videos or stories um, about what potentially could have been going on there, that the records appear to have been removed. And a lot of times when you get into these places, there are old records that are just left. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. you've got 80, 90, 100 year old hospital records. You know, these these people are, are long gone. And, yeah. you know, you wouldn't necessarily go to the extent of trying to track down, you know, family members. And what would they really want it? You know, yeah. you, you would you like the mental hospital records for your great great grandfather? No. You know, some people yeah. would, but I think for the most part, people wouldn't. And then, and then just, just the effort, the time and the, and the money it would take to track people down. You know, I don't think that, you know, anybody wants them. So they're just left. Well, well they mm-hmm. weren't just left. Um, it happened in at South hospital. Pittsburgh, the South Pittsburgh hospital. There was a lot of records left right. in that building. Right. Um, so these folks have said that there is a possibility that maybe the conditions were so bad that the state doesn't really want people to be able to see that, that it would, it would cast such a a negative light, not just on the hospital, but the, the, you know, the state of South Carolina itself and the city of Columbia, that they just want to preserve you know, an image and just say, we're just not going to talk about that. And so sure. the records were taken. Now, I don't know that for a fact. Uh, it doesn't seem like an unreasonable statement, but I have no idea if it's true. Um, but it's a possibility. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think you combine that 
with maybe making it extraordinarily difficult for paranormal investigative groups to go in there to get permission to stay the night, which is what they typically want to do to take all that equipment in there. Plus you've got safety factors, you know, we're like, well, if we're going to let these people go in there and they get hurt or somebody gets killed because they fell through the floor or something Mm -hmm. crazy, then we're going to be liable for it. You know, so we don't want that to happen. So they, they may, may have made it just extremely difficult for these, these shows or these investigative groups to get in there. And again, If you got in there illegally, then you're you might not want to publish your findings because you might fear that they would come after you. Mm-hmm. Like, oh well, you thank you for so uh, so eloquently documenting your trespass. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> you know, here's here's your court date. Right. <laughs> you know, well, especially if it was like a smaller group and all of a sudden they're looking at thousands of dollars in fines, you know, for yeah. for trespassing on state property, you know, they're going to be like, eh, no, we we're not going to we're not going to say anything if we did it or if we yeah, didn't. just keep it to ourselves. Yeah. So um, that's kind of what I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think you're probably spot on with that. Um you know, we we got into looking at this episode and we realized that it reminded us a lot of the Glasgow Necropolis, where it's on these lists of the most haunted place in South Carolina is the South Carolina Lunatic Asylum. Yeah. And we then realized, wait, it's not documented to be. So we wanted to go ahead and cover it. Basically, to give you the information that is out there about it and to also say, look, do a little research when you see something on a most haunted list. And if you're going to, you know, plan a vacation and you want to go to the most haunted hotel in Tennessee. Yeah. Well, you need to do a little research and make sure that there is actually something haunted about it because we've now that this this and the glasgow necropolis are not the only ones that matt and i have come across that have said uh you know real haunted but then they've got nothing yeah you know so do your research and and double check before you just go out there and spend a lot of money to go on a trip to this haunted location and it be just some dilapidated building yeah dilapidated dilapidated (laughs) dilapidated i don't know what that one is i don't know but i like it i'm gonna start using it (laughs) dilapidated we might ought to make a list of the top 10 places in the united states that should be haunted (laughs) yeah there you go these are the places should be haunted but aren't would be haunted (laughs) yep yep well and this one's gonna go up there on that list Yeah. yeah um but you know what do you guys think you know, we've, we we pitched this information out to you. Um, maybe there we've got some listeners in the Columbia, South Carolina area that have heard some stories. And and if you have, we'd love to hear them. You know, please share them with us. You know, we're, we're definitely telling you, we, we, are, we are not the, the end-all, be-all of paranormal research. We are bound right. to miss some things. But I'm, I'm telling you, I dug pretty deep on this. But I definitely could have missed some things. So let us know if if you've got some stories from that area, and you say, you know, hey, well, you know, I've I've heard this about 
you know, my grandmother worked there or something like that. And she said that this kind of stuff would happen at night. Yeah, let us know. And you know what? The yeah. best place to let us know that is in the grave, Graveyard Facebook group. Uh, we've got tons of people that share amazing stories uh, and personal experiences all the time. And we do have a lot of fun in there, too. Um, but it's a good, safe place for you to share these kind of stories. And that's that's kind of where, you know, Adam and I look for people to say, hey, you know, I, I've been there. I know that. Or you know, we, we experienced this there, um, and we'd love to hear it. So let us know. And, um, we, you can also find us on, uh, Instagram and Twitter. Those are our, our social media outlets. Um, but you can also visit our website, which is graveyardpodcast.com. And on our website, you can find links to purchase Graveyard Tales merchandise. Uh, you can find uh, links to listen to the show. You can become a patron, and we've already thanked our our patrons earlier in the show. We always like to thank them at the end because this is how Adam and I keep this show going and keep it free to listen. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes if you haven't already. It gets us up the charts, and it makes it easier for people to find the show, which just brings more people into the graveyard. So until next time. We'll save you a seat in the graveyard. See you soon. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.